These are the oldest stories, online at oldeststories.net. Last week, the tremendous threat of the Elamites swept over the land. They were first met by Eshnunna, who tried to beat them with military force and were absolutely crushed. They then went after Hammurabi of Babylon, who used diplomacy and cunning to stop them in their tracks completely, and then drive them back out of Mesopotamia. Eshnunna is free, though struggling, and Hammurabi is the clear winner as the dust settles in the year 1764. But while that marks the end of the Elamite War, it is not the end of the action. Four mighty kings have joined together to beat back the Elamite threat. Hammurabi of Babylon, Zimri-Lim of Mari, another Hammurabi of Yamhad, and Rimsin of Larsa. But of those four kings, the last was noticeably reticent in the matter of actually sending any troops to participate in the war, despite Hammurabi's continual insistence that the existential threat of the Elamites required a unified front. Rimsin made promises to send support soon, but those promises were only followed by later promises, never by actual support. Ironically, Hammurabi has and will continue to do the same thing to his own allies in other conflicts when he sees no clear benefits to his own kingdom in sending troops. But when the shoe's on the other foot, Hammurabi found this intolerably frustrating. Now, we're going to be looking at Rimsin and his Larsen kingdom, called in some sources Emmetbal for the Emirate ruling tribe, though I prefer Larsa to emphasize the continuity with the Issan Larsa period. However, it has been a while now since I discussed the quite old king back in episode 38, Rimsin the Pretty Good. For those of you who have only joined this podcast with the episodes on Hammurabi, you might want to go back and give that episode a listen. For those of you who are only here for Babylon, however, a short summary is as follows. The period prior to the Old Babylonian period that gets kicked off with Hammurabi is called the Isin Larsa period. Beginning around the year 2000 BCE, a period of anarchy falls over Mesopotamia, and the cities of Sumer and Akkad are mostly taken over by nomadic Amorite tribes who use their superior military might to establish themselves as the ruling classes of these cities. This is how Hammurabi's family came to power in Babylon, but in 2000 BCE, the dominant city is the city of Isim. Though Isim should not be thought of as ruling over an empire, they were just the most powerful among many independent and poor city-states, and accepted a certain amount of vassalage from some cities at different points in the Anarchic period. After 70 years, another city rises, the town of Larsa, and for about a hundred years, the two are rivals, fighting back and forth until finally, Rim Sin of Larsa arises to crush the badly weakened Isin in 1792, the same year Hammurabi came to power. Rimsin unified the region that had until now been called Sumer, the ancient cradle of civilization at the south end of the two rivers, through patience and careful, measured campaigns that ensured he was never caught unaware and never overextended himself. 
Still, the low-level fighting between Rimsin and Hammurabi following this saw Larsen power wane as the king himself gradually grew older and older. Already perhaps 50 when he conquered Isin, he's now well into his 70s, if not just past 80 years old by the time of the Elamite War. An impressive age in modern times, and even more so in his own era. Exactly how much medical care Rim Sin could have expected is in places a bit unclear. But what we can say is that the healing of the sick and injured was divided in Mesopotamia among three branches of knowledge, religious, pharmaceutical, and surgical, with the first being the most reliable and reputable, while surgery was considered the most risky. Herodotus, the father of history, provides us with one of the most well-known accounts for how the Babylonians practiced medicine in his famous and not always reliable history. He says, They bring out all the sick into their streets, for they have no regular doctors. People that come along offer the sick man advice, either from what they personally have found to cure such a complaint, or what they have known someone else to be cured by. No one is allowed to pass by a sick person without asking him what ails him. This account is both hilarious and false. While it does demonstrate the universal truth that people everywhere love to gossip about illnesses and treatments, there were most definitely full-time surgeons, as well as wise people who knew about pharmaceuticals and religious magic healing rituals. For a basic wound, even the very early Sumerians knew to wash and cover the injury, usually washed with beer, water, soap, or some combination of the three. Once the area was cleaned, they could apply some sort of covering, possibly a poultice and bandage with a combination of herbs underneath, or maybe just river mud, which is apparently much cleaner than I realized. And the wound would be washed and covering replaced each day subsequently. We have lists of some of the medicinal plants used, and actual medical doctors on the internet seem to suggest that they're pretty good for most sorts of external injuries. By Babylonian times, opiates and cannabis were in use, though possibly only administered by healer priests, not secular surgeon doctors. More advanced surgery was often attempted, and with enough regularity to appear in Hammurabi's code, suggesting it must have worked at least sometimes. The references we have are not very precise, but it appears that a surgeon could reliably set a broken bone and bind a bruised muscle. Perhaps more remarkably, and surely at higher risk, was surgery involving a bronze scalpel and lancet, in which a variety of conditions could be treated by opening a small incision in the patient, then stabbing the infected area to drain out pus from organs like the liver and pleura. I don't really know what the pleura is, but that's what the internet tells me. And apparently cataract surgery was common enough to merit six mentions in Hammurabi's code. There is a nasty description of doctors scraping away rotted bone around a skull abscess, then cleaning and rebinding, and vague references to doctors being capable of veterinary surgeries, probably similar procedures but performed on cattle and goats. But the secular surgeon doctor was very limited in what he could do. On one hand, his knowledge and technology was very limited. Even stitches appear to be unknown, and all the remedies proposed seem to be 
be purely empirical, with no theory explaining why any of it works. But additionally, he was only allowed to work on conditions with a purely physical cause and mechanical solution. For example, if a rock falls on my arm and breaks a bone, there's no mystery here as to what occurred. Similarly, if I get in a fight and get stabbed, even something like a cataract or pustule is a physical object, and when the object is removed, you can see what was taken out and that the problem is gone, barring any complications. However, microorganisms were wholly unknown in this age, and anything with a cause that could not be seen, things we would usually classify as diseases rather than wounds, were caused by the gods and could only be cured through religious and magical means, with religion and magic not having the distinction that we give them today. Say you have a fever, maybe some chills and fatigue to go along with it. There's no mystery to you why you're suddenly afflicted with an illness. As a modern person, you know that some bacteria or virus has gotten into your system and is causing problems. Similarly, if a Babylonian has the same symptoms, he also has no doubt as to the cause, as he's obviously offended the gods in some way. And just as you need to go to the doctor to find out what sort of bacteria or virus has made you ill, so too does the Babylonian need to go to an oracle to determine in what way he's offended the gods, so that the appropriate treatment may be prescribed. There are a variety of oracle types available, but the most common may have been a version of haruspicy practiced on the individual patient. In haruspicy, the entrails of a sacrificed animal were observed for color and deformities, which were read to tell the will of the gods. In medical divination, a similar process could be applied to the patient in a process that can often sound like modern diagnostics. Dream interpretation and other sorts of omens could supplement this, and typically the oracle priest would determine from this which god you had offended and which sin you had committed. With the divine source of the ailment identified, the patient could be prescribed a course of treatment, a series of rituals aimed at placating the offended god and cleansing the sin from the body. We know a great deal about which plants, minerals, and other substances were used, with lists of ingredients running into the low hundreds, many of which are effective treatments, at least so I'm told. But almost nowhere do we get a prescription paired with a description of what it does. It seems particular recipes were written down to aid in memory, but the priest or doctor was expected to simply know what to do for different problems. These could be applied as a salve, incense, or in a drink, and would be considered only one part of a full treatment that would include prayers, sacrifices, and rituals to the gods. Ultimately, healing would only come if the gods willed it, but it is a matter of fact that most people recover from the majority of their illnesses. So however you personally regard the efficacy of rituals and herbs, they definitely had a positive general track record. Failures were typically blamed on the ineptness of the doctor-priest, deep sin in the heart of the patient, or just the inscrutable will of the gods. Returning to our tale, we could see that Larsa is not the power it was 30 years ago. It is still quite impressive, but Sumer as a whole appears to be declining in power relative to the rest of Mesopotamia. 
Perhaps it's the fact that international trade is starting to flow to more northern cities like Asher, Babylon, and Mari instead of stopping in Uruk and Lagash. Almost certainly, the lingering effects of climate shifts and salinization of the soil over centuries of irrigation have damaged fertility permanently. Perhaps also the reduced vigor of Mesopotamia's longest ruling king at the end of his reign has knock-on effects throughout the kingdom. Whatever the reason, some have speculated that it isn't so much that Rimsin didn't want to send troops in support of Babylon's coalition, but that they simply couldn't with the resources at their disposal. I myself wouldn't go that far. I think weakness and Rimsin's long-running hostility with his northern neighbor both played a role. But all these things together have made the southern kingdom Hammurabi's target, even as the Elamite War is wrapping up. With the conclusion of the Elamite War, Hammurabi has the momentum in the region. More importantly, he also has a large number of troops that are still mobilized and probably expecting to go home soon. As they walk to Babylon, remember there were no horses, Hammurabi sends runners to Zimri Lim to slander Rim Sin. Surely Zimri Lim too can understand Hammurabi's frustration at Rim Sin's failure to honor their alliance. Hammurabi's letter is full of flattery, saying that during the Elamite War, he was left completely alone, save for the great gods and Zimri Lim himself, and that while his back was turned fighting the Elamites, Larsa pillaged his countryside. Is this true? It's not really clear. Most importantly, Hammurabi had consulted the oracles, and Shamash and Marduk, god of the sun and patron god of Babylon, respectively, had both demanded that Larsa be punished for their oath-breaking. With this, Zimri Lim consented to allow the Mariot force to remain under Babylonian control for another year, and the allied force marched south from Ishnuna without so much as a break, and without warning, since Hammurabi had been imprisoning Rimsin's messengers, and an army arrived at Mashkan Shapir. The Kingdom of the South was in chaos. Rimsin sent letters everywhere he could, but save for the somewhat distant and unimportant city of Dur, his messengers were all either ignored or imprisoned. The international community seemed to believe the charismatic Hammurabi over the king who had abandoned Mesopotamia to the foreign Elamites. Indeed, Rimsin may have been under a measure of personal suspicion, since his family, though Amorite, had Elamite connections going back at least to his father and grandfather. Hammurabi played the situation perfectly, using the chaos at the end of the Elamite War and his own bump in popularity, combined with condemnations of Rimsin and the blessing of the oracles, to justify a massive campaign of conquest with the tacit support of the other kingdoms and the direct support of Mari. Mashkan Shapir was a fortress town of particular importance to Larsa's ruling dynasty. Strategically, it was the closest city to Babylon itself, being only a bit downriver, and well fortified at the beginning of Larsa's extensive southern canal network. More than that, however, it had been the seat of Rimsin's father back before his dynasty had taken Larsa for itself, and the otherwise minor town had outsized importance in the heart of the king and his family. As such, though the attack was sudden, Mashkan Shapir was held by Rimsin's younger brother, who must have been fairly old himself at this point, three generals, and a few thousand troops. 
Still, we know nothing of the siege itself except that it was quick. A single assault undertaken only a handful of days after the attack began, and in short order, the city was plundered and occupied. With the northern bastion broken, progress was swift as the Babylonian armies spent the winter and early spring into 1763 capturing large swaths of territory. The crucial religious center of Nippur was taken, and the city of Isim, which had been captured by Hammurabi 20 years ago but apparently fell back into Lars's hands some time later, was returned again to Babylon in a lightning assault that we know of only in passing. And finally, Hammurabi's army reached the gates of Larsa and settled in for a long siege. Rimsin had not been idle while his territory was being overrun, sending out a new wave of letters begging for assistance. But by the time Hammurabi's soldiers reached his gates, it seems that only the town of Dur and the influential northern mercenary Atamrun, who we saw switching sides in the last war, had made it to assist. That is, these are the only proper soldiers who made it to Larsa. The city was packed to bursting with refugees from across Sumer, and Mariat letters, if they can be believed, counted 40,000 men on the city walls. An incredibly high number, even if you consider that this is vastly inflated by civilian conscripts handed spears and little else, fighting for their city and their gods. It's not clear how large Hammurabi's force was. The number of professional soldiers on each side may have been about equal or slightly in Babylon's favor, but there was no army in the Bronze Age capable of taking a well-fortified city with 40,000 armed defenders. And so Hammurabi, as usual, attacked the city with weapons other than axe and spear. Having control of the waterway allowed Hammurabi to employ a tactic first employed by Larsa only a few generations ago, damming up the Euphrates River, or at least the branch that led directly to Larsa, to cut off their water source. Now, when the Larsans had done this, it had proven to be disastrous, since they're at the south end of Sumer. Being downstream of their enemy at the time had meant that they threw their own irrigation system into chaos. But when done by an upstream city to a downstream one, the tactic worked perfectly, and the overcrowded city began rationing daily necessities quickly. Standing at the top of Larsa's high and sturdy wall, the defenders would have looked out each day to see ladders, towers, rams, and possibly ramps completed and sitting idle. They saw shipments arrive into the enemy camp, and Babylonians standing guard comfortably with full bellies. If the defender then turned, he would see his own city, crowded beyond the biggest feast day celebration. But here there was no feasting, only squalor and thirst. Having run out of grain for the civilians, the people ate the chaff and straw, and what little had been saved for the soldiers was rationed out harshly. The defender's stomach would rumble in sympathy with the starving families he defended. For six months, the city rotted impotently from within, and finally, at the very end of 1763, that defender saw an extra band of thousands more Amorites arriving from the north, troops from Ishmidagan of Assyria, troops from Zimrilim of Mari, and even a thousand men from tiny Malgium marched in, and though the attackers were likely outnumbered, the assault was brief and decisive. The city of Larsa sacked hard. 
Starving men, women, and children were at times grateful to be enslaved, since at least they would be fed now, and the treasures of the southern hegemon were scattered into a thousand hands. Rimsin himself seems to have fled the city during the final assault, but he was captured on the run shortly after and taken alive to Babylon. His precise fate is unknown, though surely he did not have long to live, whether it was the blade of Hammurabi or Father Time that brought him low in the end. In the short term, the city and territory of Larsa was plundered ruthlessly, as befits a city which refused to surrender for six long months, an extensive siege by the standards of the age. But as soon as the year turned to 1762, Hammurabi turned from vengeance to integration. The year name for his 31st year in the north of his kingdom reads, The year Hammurabi the king, trusting An and Enlil, who marches in front of his army, and with the supreme power of the great gods have given him, destroyed the troops of Emetbal, meaning Larsa, and subjected its king Rim-Sim, and subjugated its king Rim-Sim, and brought Sumer and Akkad to dwell under his authority. In the south of his kingdom, however, the newly conquered territories, the year name was simply the year Hammurabi became king, as if he had simply succeeded to the throne in normal fashion. Continuing this theme, Hammurabi repeated the reforms of his first year in these new territories, cancelling debts in the south and establishing justice in a strong-handed and impartial fashion. Top officials were replaced by loyal Babylonians, but for the most part, the very well-established civil structure of Larsa, discussed more fully in the episode on Rimsin, was allowed to continue functioning. Indeed, it would impress Hammurabi so much that he would soon begin implementing similar land reforms in the north as well, and the civil service and land reform systems invented by Rimsin would soon come to be a hallmark of Babylonian administration throughout the old Babylonian period. Bandits and raiders had flourished in the confusion of the war, and the soldiers who had anticipated going home after the last war were kept on again for another year, as Hammurabi was able to convince Zimri Lim of the dire necessity of combating lawlessness in the region. Despite his attempts at winning the populace over, it's debated as to how successful he was. Certainly, he would face no southern rebellion in his lifetime, and Sumer would grow in prosperity under his watch. However, at about this time, the king of Elam sends a letter to the king of Eshnunna, suggesting that if Babylon strikes north, Elam will support Eshnunna with an attack into the south. In this same letter, he makes the curious claim that the people of Larsa were writing to him, begging for liberation from Babylon. Is this true, or is the king of Elam just making things up? We have no real way of knowing, and in any case, this particular letter would come to nothing. However much Hammurabi would boast of being a just and loved ruler over all his territories, what those he conquered thought about the regime change is lost to us now. The transition from the Akkadian-style law code that dominated Sumer and the Amorite-style laws that Hammurabi imposed on the south with this conquest would have been in many ways a smooth one, though in other ways quite jarring. 
As mentioned in our first episode on Hammurabi, the law code which sits in the Louvre today, and which gave him so much fame in both the Bronze Age and our own time, has not been written yet. However, it is believed that many elements of the law are already in place by this time, and the actual writing of the code is more of a codification of what was already in practice in his empire. And in fact, there may have been very few innovations indeed introduced by Hammurabi himself. Much is made of the similarities between the laws of the Torah and those of Hammurabi, but it may well be the case that both are drawing from the general practices of Semitic communities, of which Amorite is one branch. The law codes which we've been seeing previously in the show may have been enforced only among Akkadians of the cities, with the Semitic Amorites having their own unwritten justice system in parallel. Being unwritten, however, means that we can only speculate about what Amorite law may have looked like before it appears fully formed sometime in the 1750s. In many ways, as mentioned, the law has changed very little. Courts have been recognized in Mesopotamia since the early dynastic period, and in form they would have been at least somewhat recognizable to us today. Cases brought before the court had two parties, an accuser and a defendant. Each would represent themselves. There were no lawyers, but the laws were simple enough that a literate man could competently petition without one. There were no dedicated court buildings which was apparently by design, since it was seen as valuable for the proceedings to be open, both to the public and before the gods. And so while the exact location could change, court was typically held in front of buildings with particular religious significance, likely before the city's main temple or before the main gate of a city, which was itself usually consecrated as a shrine of a major god. Here, too, would often be a place for the public swearing of oaths, though this doesn't seem to have required the court to be in session, just for both parties to be present before the god. Within the court, things proceeded more or less how they do now, with argumentation, evidence, and witnesses all having a role to play. Argumentation was not formalized in the way it would later be, but many things that are now legal rules, like presumption of innocence and deference to the judge, were implicitly followed as general conventions. There were no juries, but the fallibility of a single judge is a well-known issue, so it seems many cases were heard before panels of three to five judges. Appeals do have not seem to have been a thing, but contentious cases or those with capital punishments could be kicked up the chain to the king himself, or the king could take an interest in the case and override the judges either during or following the case, something Hammurabi seems to have particularly enjoyed. Other kings may have left much of this to a royal appointee. The sanctity of a decision was very important for the argumentative Mesopotamians, and a somewhat common insult for men of low character is that they do not accept verdicts that they don't like. To this end, the first five laws in Hammurabi's code all concern different types of false witnesses and crimes that attack the integrity of the judicial system itself, with law number five saying that if a judge should render a verdict, then after the trial alter that verdict, then he would be liable for 12 times the penalty of that case and removed from judgeship permanently. 
Interestingly, this law also seems to imply that in Babylon, judges are selected from among the city assembly, another tiny indication of this almost invisible institution in Mesopotamian life. But the new Amorite way of law also brings some changes, most notably the addition of a new social class. In other law codes, distinctions are made between free men and slaves. But in Hammurabi's code, we have three different classes of people, all treated differently under the law. Awilu, Mushkenu, and Wardu or Amtu. The last two are male and female slaves, but the difference between the first two classes is the subject of much debate. Awalu is certainly the higher class, and some have equated it to citizen, while the Mushkenu is the lower or middle class and equated by some to a mere free man. Some believe these to be purely economical classes, while some see Awalu as a sort of minor nobility. But if I may be so bold as to assert my own theory, wholly unsupported by the academic literature here and which could be completely off base, I suspect that the Aulu is at least nominally the ruling Amorite class of society, being held to Amorite law, while Mushkenu are the Akkadian citizens, following a version of their traditional laws. Specifically, it is the Aulu class who have the famous eye-for-an-eye punishments in laws such as if an Awalu should blind the eye of another Awalu, they shall blind his eye. And if he should break the bone of another Awalu, they shall break his bone. This is the famous Lex Talonis, and it can be seen in other Semitic traditions, such as the decree of the book of Exodus, reading, But if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, and stripe for stripe. Both of these traditions may well derive from a general Semitic nomad sense of ethics, in which conflicts need to be dealt with swiftly and decisively in the context of a fairly small, poor, and mobile tribal group. For the Mushkenu class, however, these same injuries are compensated financially, much the same way as can be seen in law codes going back to the Akkadian Empire, and probably going back to Sumerian times. And so if an Awalu breaks the bones of a Mushkenu, he must deliver 60 shekels of silver, about half a kilogram. Now, it's hard to weigh how people judged corporal and financial punishments, but in some circumstances, 60 shekels may well have been more costly than a broken bone. Similarly, in cases of negligence, such as a mistake by a physician, the penalties are corporal for injuries to an awalum, but only financial for the lower classes. However, this does not hold for cases of theft, where in many cases a theft with no ambiguity is punishable by death, where in Akkadian law codes it's punished by a return of the value of the stolen goods, usually with a bit extra added on for punishment. Thus, to my mind, Hammurabi's code represents something of a hybrid justice system, wherein both the Amorite ruling class and the native Akkadians are contributing their own ideas about justice and ethics, and the differences between the two should not be overstated. 
Questions of retribution versus compensation loom large in modern penology debates, but most important for the ancient Mesopotamians was that the court system be an impartial outside decider when conflicts arose between two parties, and that it be capable of achieving some sort of justice fairly quickly so that the incident could be put in the past and society could move forward relatively intact. And in this capacity, it was largely successful preventing most sorts of multi-generational blood feuds that crop up in other societies and maintaining social order as the Mesopotamians conceived of it. There is quite a lot more that can be said about Hammurabi's laws, but the family and economic aspects of it will be looked at in later episodes. But now that he's conquered Larsa, it's time to open the next chapter of Hammurabi's story, one in which his famous diplomacy begins to fall apart, and he moves much more directly towards seizing total power in Mesopotamia. So join us next week as the drive toward empire continues with a dramatic and destructive northern campaign. Thank you for listening.